Welcome to the Apollo Social Science Podcast, where we explore the borderlands between healthcare and social science. In each episode, we're going to speak to a researcher who's working in this space to hear a bit about three books or thinkers or ideas that have influenced them in their research journey. So today I'm really glad to be welcoming Professor Deborah Swinglehurst, who's the leader of the Apollo Social Science Group and is also my PhD supervisor. And we're going to hear about three big ideas that have influenced her research journey and journey as a practitioner as well so far. Deborah, would you mind just telling us about one thing that you're currently working on, just to give us a bit of a flavour of the sort of work that you do? Yes, so I've recently been involved in a number of projects exploring polypharmacy. Polypharmacy um, refers to the use of multiple medicines by one person, and I've been um, running several projects in this area. Um, One of the main projects is called Apollo MM, um, where I've been researching the practices of polypharmacy across general practice, community pharmacy and in patients' homes. That's included following the lives of older people prescribed 10 or more items of medication and seeing and learning about how they integrate polypharmacy into their daily lives and what challenges it presents for them. So today we're going to hear about three ideas that have Um, been really instrumental in your journey as a clinician and as a researcher and um, who's asking these sorts of questions and working in these sort of creative ways and I wonder if we could start with your first book which is a book by Trish Greenhouse, um, How to Read a Paper. Could you tell us a bit about um, sort of where you were in your career when you came across this book, um, what it meant for you and um, why, why you've chosen it today? Sure. So I came across this book um, as a GP registrar. In fact, I think it was published the very year that I was in my transition between a hospital doctor, a junior hospital doctor and a a GP. And um, I read this book um, out of interest and because I wanted to learn how to read a paper, I suppose. And I found it to be a really compelling book. Um, Evidence-based medicine um, was a new thing. And evidence-based medicine, um, as it was originally described by David Sackett, um, is the, the conscientious, explicit and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of patients. And that held really intuitive appeal to me and seemed to make a great deal of common sense. Uh, and so it, I um, read how to read a paper in, in, in order to, to, to build some skills and confidence in, in understanding how to, how to work with patients to ensure that what I was doing was um, based on, on good science, if mm. you like. Mm. Um, and I, I became uh, a, a, a great enthusiast for evidence-based medicine and, and really it was that interest that that led me into academia because my first post as an academic involved um, building a question answering service for for GPs and practice nurses where they were able to submit their questions from their practice for which they'd like to understand the evidence and and my role was to um, find the relevant literature, search for it, find it, do the critical appraisal and provide 
um, a brief summary to these practitioners to assist them in their work. Mm. And that's that's a, a job that I took on essentially very soon after qualifying as a GP. And right. um, so it's it was really that reading that book that uh, that that got me into my first academic post. Mm. Um, and. Um, I have since become somewhat critical of the way that evidence-based medicine has been implemented in practice, but at that time, um, it was a, I, I found it a really exciting and, and compelling notion um, that yes. I could really make use of in my everyday practice, especially in the context that I was moving, I was soon to move from having a trainer next door to working independently as a GP. And uh, really realizing I did need some skills and tools in understanding how to work out what to do. Yes, and, um, and just kind of asking on that kind of journey you've gone on since that time, because I, I guess it's I, I really like finding this out about you and this as one of your important books because I, now I picture you as someone who, for me, has helped me to kind of challenge some of the, um, I guess. Yeah, some of the assumptions that, that's made about evidence-based medicine and what it, where maybe some of its blind spots are, at least in how it's mm. used now. And so I guess I'm interested to know what are those concerns that you'd now have about the evidence-based movement? But also, it sounds like it's not that you've kind of said it's, 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 all, it's all kind of useless or, 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 or it's all completely yeah. wrong. So there's still, this book's still a really important part of, of mm. your journey. So, so t tell me a bit about how, how you view it now. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that was interesting about this role that I had where I, ha I was providing evidence-based answers, I put that in quotes really, answers to the GP's questions, um, was first of all, I did come to realise that there were um, some fairly major gaps in the evidence when it came to actually implementing the evidence such as it is or was in a general practice context. Mm. So I, I did discover that many of the answers that I provided to practitioners were quite hedged and were, um, they, you know, there was a considerable amount of interpretation needed to actually implement what was in the science in the clinic space. And of course, a lot of the patients that we see in general practice would be excluded from the original trials and so on. So there were some distinctive gaps in the evidence. Mm. Um, the other thing that was quite interesting about that project was that um, I was um, conducting that work at Imperial College um, School of Medicine in London, but living in Ipswich and practicing as a GP in Ipswich. And... Um, in the, in the project, I had to work really quite hard to encourage our participants to pose questions to the service. So, so they, they wanted to be engaged and there I was available and but I had to work quite hard to, to get them to submit questions to me. Um, while this was happening in Ipswich, where I was working as a GP, um, everybody knew that I had this other job in London where I was delivering this service to local, well, local in London, GPs. And they thought, oh, that sounds really good. I'm a bit stuck with something. I'll just see if I can send Deborah a question right. um, and see if she can, she can maybe help me with that. So whilst I was having this challenge in London about getting questions in, suddenly in Ipswich there was this thing going on. Mm. And I guess that made me realise that 
when it comes to the evidence, it doesn't always, it doesn't stand alone in any way. It needs interpreting. And actually, because I was well known in the Ipswich area as a practicing GP, I was familiar and maybe trusted by colleagues and so on. Mm. There was a, a, a different level of, of engagement. But of course, I didn't really have time to be doing all that right. work um, in, in, in Ipswich. But it was an interesting um it, was an int- it gave me some interesting things to think about in terms of where does evidence sit in our practice mm. and what else needs to be in place yes. to make use of it. Um, I mean, in terms... I've now forgotten what your question was. You are half answered. So, so, so it's, it's about kind of where that journey was taking you and, and I guess how now as you've kind of gone on, I guess, a number of steps where you've further critiqued some of those gaps that, yeah. uh, and, and, and just, well, I guess just pointed out that it, it really isn't set up to ask or answer some of the, the kind of key questions that exist. Sure. How, how you'd now look at the evidence-based medicine movement and yes. um, yeah, where, where its role is in, in, in sure. your view now. I mean, I, I'm sure like most GPs, I make use of guidelines, evidence and so on, and, they, and I do find them genuinely very useful. Um, but obviously they need to be integrated within a wider scope of practice and there are limitations about the evidence and so on. Um, I, I think my, I mean, the other, the other critique really around evidence-based medicine is the way that it's been um, tied up with um, pay for performance and initiatives like the quality and outcomes framework um, where... Um, Doctors are essentially paid for for following particular um, guidelines, uh, which uh, comes with a with, with a distinct set of of, of problems. Mm. Um, and um, there's the, one fundamental problem is the way that people are carved up into their separate diseases, and we start to have a very single disease focused approach to managing patients who, who often have multiple problems and therefore need to be um, managed with that with that in mind. Um, so so we, we could talk about this for a, a very long time I'm sure but there, there, are, there are some significant problems in how it's become um, integrated into, into health policy mm. and, and the kind of um, behaviours that it can derive I think. Yes. Um, so I think the other thing is that in its at its inception, one of the um, key problems that evidence-based medicine was seeking to address was the um, the problem that um, we were heavily dependent on experts whose opinions often varied, and so there's that there was great variation in practice and. There was a desire to ensure that decision making is is grounded in scientific evidence rather than just in the um, practices of a particular expert. Mm. But as time has moved on and the commitment to doing medicine by guideline has has got stronger and stronger, um, what we find, of course, is that many of the national guidelines, uh, a, a lot of the guidelines we have are indeed Based, there are sections of them that are based very heavily on consensus opinions. Mm. So we feel like we've done a whole circle, really, and actually, um, that 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 isn't a bad thing. Mm. <laughs> the the recognition that a consensus of expert opinions is is a good form of evidence, but yes. but it 
it's it's a shift in in how it was conceptualized mm. up front and so yeah we we're now in this strange place where we've we've made a big shift towards a kind of protocol driven approach to many things in medicine yes there are, there feels now that there's a protocol for everything almost um whilst um and and that doesn't work mm. Mm. <laughs> um that doesn't doesn't work in the in the complex arena of of human beings experiencing multiple medical problems or even single medical problems um and the 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 kind of shift towards a, a risk of slavishly following a set of protocols and guidelines is i think a is a dangerous one yes. um, so I think that's that's a significant problem yes. so and, and as you said earlier the evidence I mean the evidence has to start somewhere and actually much of what we're doing is in general practice in particular um, is seeing patients with an undifferentiated set of messy symptoms mm. many of which are not um, symptoms of disease or pathology but are symptoms of something else mm. uh, symptoms of distress for example and and of course most of our evidence starts with a diagnosis mm. um, so uh, or, or a, or a, def- a well-defined problem yes um, the kind of problem you can do research on and that's just not a, a terribly good fit for much of the work that we do yes. as GPS so I think that brings us really nicely to your second choice, um, which is a book with a beautiful title of The Mystery of General Practice by Iona Heath, which is, um, I think, from how I've heard you talk about this book before, is going to speak to some of these things. But again, do you mind just saying a bit about um, what this book meant to you at the time you read it and some of the kind of key ideas from it that have stuck with you now? Yeah, so this book was written in 1995. So again, it's it was quite a new publication at the point at which I was entering the field of general practice. Um, and I read it, I think, having been a GP for a couple of years. Um, and the significance for me was that it really um, presented to me an understanding of the what you might call the essence or the nub of generalism that... Um, it was perhaps better articulated there than in any other place that I'd read Um, because general practice or generalism is so often defined by what it isn't rather than what it is and this book um, really helped me to understand more clearly I think what my role as a GP might be (laughs) so um, the shift from hospital medicine into general practice can be quite daunting and much of my training as a, as a medical student was was around disease and pathology and then the shift into general practice can be a shift into what feels like quite a strange place right. um, because um, we have to think very differently about the nature of our role and the disease is not our focus it's mm. um, it's not our key focus it's um, it's serving people um, with as I said earlier often a messy array of symptoms that arise out of living life Um, so I found and I've gone back to this text many times because I still think it's one of the clearest articulations of generalism that Mm. I've come across and 
whilst it was written in 1995, I think it is um, just as relevant, if not more so, today. Mm. Um, so, and there's something that she says in it about um, interpreting stories, which I really liked. Have you got that that quote? I, I've forgotten what it is exactly. But. Um, so the the mystery of general practice um, that there are there are three particular interrelated roles that Iona introduces around generalism and being a GP. One is um, the GP is witness to suffering, Mm. um, which speaks to notions of being there, listening, not always being there to solve a problem or fix or or cure um, or or prescribe or any of those things, but but being a witness to suffering. Um, And perhaps identifying the role as, of the GP as, as someone who encounters much suffering and, and, and being a witness to that is, is, is important and is, is sometimes enough as well. Mm. Um, so, so witness to suffering and then interpreter of stories um, and the next one which we can come back to mm. once we've discussed stories is, is guardian at the interface between illness and disease. Mm. Um, which we can come to. Um, so, it, interpreter of stories um, is the the role that the GP has in helping patients to make sense of their suffering, and it places the consultation or the dialogue um, very much centre stage, and invites us to think about um, biography um, as well as biology. Mm. Um, but that there is there is a, a, a distinct danger in medicine that we can get pulled towards focusing on biology um, and the role of the GP as, as interpreter of stories is first of all an invitation to give the patient time to tell their story mm. and to listen but also offering opportunities for patients to rehearse their stories perhaps over n- multiple encounters and offering a space in which patients can hear themselves recounting their stories to another. And it perhaps shifts the notion of taking a history, which is what we all learn at medical school, um, so take, taking a history to making making a story. Um, so there's something about um, supporting the, pa- the patient. And, and this is another kind of witnessing role, really, mm. uh, witnessing and listening and, and supporting and helping patients to, to make sense of their illness and make sense of their suffering to, to the extent that that is, to, that is possible. Mm. Um, so I found that a very powerful and helpful way of thinking about what I should be doing in the room. Mm. Um, can, can I ask you about how that's um, really been one... Yeah, how that's come into the way that you've approached research as well, because both of those two things, as those first two we started with as a witness to suffering and as an interpreter of stories, mm. how has that um, played out in, in, in the way that you've approached approached your research? So um, I have, I'm a qualitative researcher, so um, I work a lot with words and meaning. Um, and um, have used narrative methodologies in the, the, the design and conduct of, of interviews um, and have also done research which involves recording consultations and, and paying attention to the dialogue in, in quite close detail. 
um, and, and looking at how the, the dialogue evolves within the consultation. So I've, um, and, and I would say all of the, the research that I do as a qualitative researcher would sit within what's called an interpretive paradigm. So um, the acknowledgement that there is always interpretation mm. in, in all that we do um, and that um, meaning is something which is made. So as a qualitative researcher, that um, a, a, a distinctive recognition that, that, that I, as the researcher, I'm engaged in, a, in, a, mm. in an interpretive process. Yes. Um, which which sits very uh, going back to the evidence based medicine thing. This is this has been a journey. So yes. you know that this this is a, a very different paradigm right. that I'm now occupying mm. as a, as a qualitative researcher. Um, so yeah, I hope that's mm. that's Thank helpful. You. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and then you said the third point was then as a guardian between, was it a guardian between illness and, and disease? Is, is so a guardian at the interface between illness and disease. Mm. So that, this is a kind of gatekeeping role and um, people are generally quite familiar with the idea of a GP as the gatekeeper between primary and secondary care, the person who is able to make a referral to the hospital or the consultant. But um, perhaps even more important in the work that we do is um, doing the interpretive work, if you like, between illness and disease. So illness being all of the symptoms and suffering that people bring into the room and our um, role in making sense of that with the patient, but, but we're diagnosticians as well. And so one of the, that the role of guardian is essentially around um, protecting a, a patient from the over-enthusiastic or overzealous use of investigations, diagnostic labels, referrals, and so on. Because if we, if we use those things over-enthusiastically and too willingly and get that wrong, and then um, there's a lovely line in, in her book, the over-enthusiastic interpretation of illness as disease leaves patients open to the dangers but not the benefits of scientific medicine. Right. So scientific medicine, be it blood tests, imaging, referrals to hospital, medication, um, all of these things um, can do a great amount of good, but they're all capable of doing harm. And so if we, um, if, if for example, everybody that we see with a headache if we investigate every headache uh, as a potential brain tumour, then we, we expose a patient to all of the risks and harms, potential harms of medicine, which includes anxiety, worry, mm. exposure to tests and potentially drugs and other things. Um, without, um, we, we expose them to the harms, but not, not the benefits, mm. if, if you like. Um, so it's just as important that we, we, we don't use these things mm. in situations where we, we, we don't think they're going to do any good. Right. Um, so so that's, that's, I think, a really critical role of the GP. And I think that's a role that's really hard to do well, um, especially in a society that is becoming, I think, increasingly unable to tolerate risk and uncertainty. Mm. Um, but if we can... Um, so it's, I think this is really hard to do well, um, but it's it's very important to do mm -hmm. it well. Mm -hmm. um, 
because otherwise we can have a, a patient who's coming well mm. who goes out sick mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. which which isn't really our role it yes. seems to me yes so you know our primary ethic is first do no harm mm-hmm. and so this is an interface where i think we have to really be very careful mm-hmm. how we manage it and i'm you know, I'm, I'm sure we don't all get this right all yes. of the time but as a kind of principle of practice mm-hmm. or a or an ethos or a value mm-hmm. um i think it's um really important so yes. I, I found this uh, at the time I found this a very it, it was a way of thinking about my role the, mm. the, the guardian thing that I hadn't really perhaps fully understood or yes. hadn't quite got in some way and that really changed or did it change my practice I, I, I wouldn't say it changed my practice but it really changed my orientation to what I do and I suspect mm. it did change my practice yes. Um, because that's been a really kind of influential way of thinking about my yes. role. And that's definitely played out in some of the research questions that yes, you've been, been yes, asking. Yes, it, it, it has. Um, and as I said earlier, I'm, I've been doing some research on polypharmacy uh, amongst older people with a particular focus on patients prescribed 10 or more items of medication, which is a, a pragmatic marker for what's called higher risk prescribing. So it's a situation where we, we know that we, we may be exposing patients to unnecessary harm. Mm. That's not to say that's not sometimes... It's not, it is sometimes necessary for patients to be on a, a number of medications, mm. don't get me wrong. But um, we also know that um, over-prescribing for patients obviously places them at risk of... Um, drug interactions, falls, hospital admissions, mm. and, and there's, a, there's a very solid amount of evidence mm. that shows that shows this um, and so yes it's played out in in some of my interests in what we might broadly call medical overuse mm. um, yeah because th- these are really and that you know these are really important moral questions that right. the kind of balance between too little just enough yes. and too much of all that we do is is a really it, it's very difficult to get that right yes. but it's really important that we strive to get it right yeah it's, um, it's, it's kind of striking that at the start of your your career as a general practitioner you sort of got these two books which are seems to me like a bit of a call to the best of medical knowledge to sort of get you know you get to use knowledge as best you can but also a call to I don't know if wisdom is the right word, but something something that's got to something that's not in the realm of just knowledge. Yes. So, so something that's, as you say, a, a, a value judgment, a sort of it, it's calling forth a courage, perhaps. So, so something something that's yeah, it, it's at the level of, of, of values and of something that can't really be contained by the evidence based medicine movement yes. Um, yes. as a whole. Quite and courage is definitely a. A virtue in, mm. um, in um, well, in, in all things, but in but but in general practice, where you know, at the end of the day, many of the people that we see don't have a a a a, a, a diag- will not benefit from a diagnostic label right. or a disease label. Um, so, being able to to work well mm. in in the realm of patients who may have many many symptoms, but don't have a disease mm. um, is is really important. Yes, um, I actually I ran a workshop actually with with a a, a colleague at um, a few years ago now, which we we called um, cultivating the courage to avoid medical overuse. Right. So yes. there is a there is a 
a virtue of courage involved mm. in it. Mm. Um, yeah. So the, I guess the, the third um, idea we're going to hear about is um, probably the one that people are least likely to have heard of. <laughs> and um, it, it's a, a, someone who is from a different country in a different era and um, a, a thinker, a writer um, called Bakhtin. And I'd like to ask a bit about First of all, how you came across him, and secondly, um, what he has meant to you um, since since that time. Yeah, so Bakhtin um, was a philosopher of language and a literary critic, a, a Russian literary critic, um, and and his work originated in the early twentieth century, but was only available in English translation in I think about the nineteen seventies, and and he spent some of his life in exile, so. Even the authorship of certain texts is a little bit unclear. Anyway, I came across Bakhtin um, when I was doing an open university master's module on discourse analysis, and it was um, early on in my PhD. Um, And that was a a course that um, exposed me to what it turns out is a huge field (laughs) um, of... um, different approaches to studying language and interaction and language in use perhaps is the mm. best way of um, talking about it. So, so Bakhtin was one of the many scholars that I came across in that context um, and um, I was doing my PhD on how I was exploring how electronic patient records, which were then still quite a new thing, uh, how how electronic patient records shape the organisation of care, but also, and quite particularly, how do they shape the consultation. And so I was was looking around, um, I was video recording consultations um, and capturing the electronic record um, as it was used, the, Mm. the text, the shifting and dynamic text of the record as it was being used and I, I was I was um, searching for a way of a, a set of theoretical tools that would speak to that work and help me to make sense of it um, and I, I kept coming back to Bakhtin and I started reading some of the original texts which are quite difficult I haven't read them before it doesn't but, surprise me actually. <laughs> quite difficult reads and um, and um, but I just found myself keeping coming back to to to, to Bakhtin and 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 so I, and in fact I've used some of the ideas that Bakhtin introduced in a number of pieces of right. work since. So um, I yeah so I've I've drawn on Bakhtin on a number of occasions um, and uh, one of the key things that there are a number of concepts that that um, I I draw on but. One of the key things that um, Bakhtin introduced as a notion is the concept of language as dialogical. Mm. And this was a really radical shift at that time um, in how language is, was under, is understood. So it's a shift away from the idea that language is a set of codes that transmit or represent information right. towards the notion of language as being fundamentally dialogical, so that all spoken utterances must be understood in terms of how they respond to a previous utterance and how they anticipate the next utterance. Mm. And this could be in, in spoken language or indeed in written 
language. And the consequence of this is that um, any the, the, the meaning the meaning of language kind of emerges in the interstices mm -hmm. in the space between the speaker and, and the listener. Um, and this means that the, the context, even the context of an emerging conversation, the context mm. is shifting all the time. Right. And um, the specific meaning of language can only be understood by reference to the very particular context in which it's articulated. Yes. Can, can I, can I ask is just, that clear? It's, yeah, just, it's, just to, I mean, it took me ages to get my head yeah. around this when I started yeah. working with this notion. Mm. And at some level, the idea that an interaction is dialogue feels very common sense. Sure. Um, but there's something about the work that the language is doing. Mm. And um, if um, a speaker says something, then it could mean many things. Yes. But at the moment at which you look at how the utterance is taken up by mm. the other person, it takes on a particular meaning. So which which you can then yeah. discern more clearly. I, I think I get it, but if if just to <laughs> just to kind of put it in a in like a a, a use case. Let, yes. Let's say I was let's say I was interested in talking to someone who experiences a certain um, illness about their um, about their experience of, of that illness, and if I was going to use a frame of language that I don't know what the opposite of dialogical is, but like um, you say like symbolic or, 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 or like, like that the language just holds one meaning um, mm. at all times. It's fairly set. Or if I was going to use this approach of kind of understanding yeah. it dialogically, how would that affect um, how I went about that, that sort of research? Yeah. So one consequence is that if you're, the interviewer and you have your interviewee um, recognising your role as interviewer as part of the dialogue. So you're not simply mining data, if you like, you're not gathering a set of facts, right. um, but you are participating in an, in a, in a, an interaction. So recognising your role as, as a dialogical partner in mm -hmm. the interview um, but it, it is, it's, it's more than that because um, it also means in the analysis of, say this becomes a transcript, you, you, it gets transcribed as a text and you're, you're analysing it. Um, it means that when you are analysing the text, um, you, you need to appreciate that the language is doing some work that is over mm. and above its... its work as a sign or, or it doesn't just represent reality there's a sense in which reality is is or social life is being created in the act of the interview mm. so that's that's one thing but the other thing and, and I've used this this in some methods you may actually not use a trans well you'd use a transcript but you may also listen carefully to the to the interview um, numerous times I need to explain another Bactinian concept yeah, to goof. to um explain why this is so it's it's Bakhtin's notion of voice um, and um, Bakhtin speaks about us always becoming through the act of appropriating the voices of others and bringing to those voices our own evaluative accent so he's not only saying that language doesn't simply represent particular things but he's also saying that when we speak um, there's something about who is doing the talking and so when we speak um, in, our, in our language use 
we are appropriating the voices of others. These might be other people, they might be voices of certain dogma or scientific truths or discourses. And, and um, his a notion of becoming is that we, in our lives, we continue to appropriate the voices of others. So our, our, our language is multivocal. Mm-hmm. So in an interview, we've recently used something called the listening guide, which, is, um, which draws on Bakhtin in theory. And in analysing these interviews, we listened numerous times to the voice of the interviewee doesn't become just a transcript Um, and and in one of the phases of the listening guide we're actually listening for what are called polyphonic voices trying to identify different voices within Mm. the utterances yeah so it's quite complex yeah but it makes what it what the really exciting thing about it for me is that it is it, it it enables approaches that allow us to see the great potential of language for holding ambiguity for example right. um, and I mean language is a um, is a very is, is an amazing resource that we draw on all the time in mm. our daily lives and and it's very capable of being used flexibly and accommodating ambiguity and so on and it, it, it the Bactinian approaches stop us closing things down but allow us to sort of sit with the messiness of this complexity which mm. is something that I'm keen to do yes and um, so, yes. so not closing things down and putting people or ideas into boxes too readily mm. but but sitting with that complexity and I think Bakhtin introduces numerous concepts which allow us to to do that it's difficult mm. it, it, it means that the act of analyzing data is it's more complex, yes. but um, also, I think, more interesting. Mm, yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, one, one reflection and one question. One is that this just feels like the antithesis of um, the sort of hardcore core of evidence-based <laughs> medicine, uh, like yes. uh, the idea that you must deeply tolerate uh, ambiguity and uh, perhaps, I'm, perhaps I'm doing it disservice, but, but it, it feels like we've gone a long way from idea one to idea three. Yeah, here. yeah. Um, well, it has been a journey. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. it has been quite a long, quite, over quite a number of yes. years. But, um, the, but it certainly, certainly there, there has been a paradigm hmm. shift. Yes. But I, I would, I would also say that it's that these are not either or. Right. They're, yeah. they, they can be both and. Yes. And so, I think the real wisdom, if you like, certainly as a practitioner of medicine, but also in our, our research, is 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 understanding that there's much to be gained from accommodating different yes. ways of perceiving mm. the world and doing yeah. doing the world, if you like. Um, so I think we need all of these different ways mm. of, of understanding um, and whilst they may be at some level philosophically a bit incommensurable <laughs> they being able to accommodate and draw on these different ways of right. viewing the world mm. at different times uh, is I think very valuable yes. and important yes yeah. can, can I just ask one more back team question for because I, I, I feel like it's such revolutionary stuff, but it's also very like tricky to <laughs> see, to like spot it. And perhaps one thing just to bring out this 
multivocality um, idea. Would you be able to give an example from your um, research in polypharmacy about where you might hear, rather than just hearing the voice of participant X, where actually as you listen back, you might hear a couple of different voices coming out or, or, sure. or them trying to do different work in, in answer to, yes. to a question? So um, we recently published a paper in which we introduced the idea of the multi-morbidity tightrope. Um, and, and this was a piece of work um, that where we um, analysed our biographical narrative interviews um, using the listening guide approach. Um, and what we were able to draw attention to was the way in which our participants, older people who were taking lots of medicines and had lots of problems, how they were um, at one and the same time able that they appropriated the what you might call the voice of medicine um, with its metrics and its um, surveillance and uh, its its numbers for blood pressure and blood counts and so on. So so our participants very readily accommodated that kind of language in their accounting of their lives. Um, but also at the same time, um, in close analysis of the text, you can see their voices of resistance, if you like, mm. that the, the way in which they uh, the, the, they were they were living in a position of great precarity but great compromise, and so there, there's a, there's an appropriation of this medical voice, and they all had very good relationships with their health service providers mm. and so on. So there's, a, there's an accommodation of that, but within a context of them also wanting to actively resist mm. many elements of that and just get on with living their lives. Yes. And, um, and, and that struggle, if you like, between the demands of the clinic and the demands of living their lives with many medical conditions was one that expanded not... It wasn't just about their medicines, but... It expanded into all, all all the realms of their lives. So there, there there were struggles around how the voice of independence. I want to be as independent as I can be, but I recognise that I am dependent in mm. some ways. Mm. So how do I manage that struggle? Um, yes, I've got a friend that is willing to give me a lift to that place every week, but I don't want to be a bother to that person. Mm. So the ways in which you can see the language being used to um, to accept and resist at the same time, yes. if you like. Yes, that's brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Deborah, for your time today. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening in. Um, please do follow links to any of the three ideas that we've heard Deborah talk about today through the show notes. And you can subscribe to the podcast through most major podcast platforms. We hope to have episodes out most months. And please do visit the Apollo Social Science website if you'd like to find out more about Deborah's work and of others in our group. See you next time.